0: Well, today, uh, I'm super excited to introduce to you our guest speaker. I, I I was supposed to be in Israel today. A number of you who uh, are here this morning were supposed to be in Israel today. We had a, a tour that had been planned for about two years, and uh, unfortunately, the events of October 7th have... Uh, interrupted uh, the opportunity to travel there, but uh, in, the, uh, in the event of uh, being uh, scheduled to be away, I had asked my younger brother, Jared Carlson, to come and fill in and, uh, and preach for us this morning. When, uh, when the Israel trip got canceled, I said, Jared, hey, I'm still here. I'm available. He had already made arrangements at his home church. And so he said, hey, you know what? I'd still love to come and share with your people. So I, I am excited because Jared and I have been talking for years about uh, having him come and share. He still hasn't invited me to his church yet, by the way. Um, I don't know what to make of that quite, but, uh, but I'm really excited to have Jared here. Jared is my younger brother, uh, four years younger than me. So yes, I'm the older, wiser, better looking of the the two. Uh, you'll see that very clearly here in a moment. But uh, Jared is uh, truly one of my uh, just best friends in the whole world. Uh, we've had a great relationship our whole life, and uh, I'm just so thrilled to have him. Uh, he's a graduate of Bethel College, Bethel Seminary, and uh, for the last 12 years has been the pastor of Grace Point Church in New Brighton. So if you know anybody in the North Metro area looking for a solid church, uh, you can't go wrong with uh, Jared and Grace Point. So, Lakes Free, would you please welcome my younger brother, Jared Carlson?
1: Thanks, Thanks, brother. Well, good morning, Lakes Free. It is so great to be with all of you this morning. If you are a guest or visitor with us this morning, um, you can come back next week knowing there won't be too much disruption. The guy you just heard, we sound a lot alike, don't we? If, uh, if you're a regular here, you don't like things changing too much, I would just encourage you to close your eyes. It will be just like Jason preaching as well. That's, that's my hope. So uh, we, we, we always had fun when we were roommates uh, after college for a little bit. It was fun. My wife and I dated long distance, and we'd be sitting next to each other on the couch. He would be hearing my conversation, and just to kind of play a little game with my wife, just in mid, mid-conversation, I would just hand the phone to my brother, and she had no clue... No clue that she was talking to my brother, so we had, we had fun with that. But you know, how many of you are uh, younger siblings to older siblings like I am to my brother? All right, so a lot of you can appreciate and relate to the idea of trying to always like, live up to the expectations that maybe your older sibling set, especially if, in my case, it's a brother. Sometimes it's a brother-sister thing, it's different. But my whole life has been lived trying to fill the standard that my brother has set. I mean, all of life, family, school, sports, ministry, you name it, in many ways, he has gone before me. And so one of the ways that I've experienced this is that no matter where I've gone in my life, I have always been called Jason. <laughs> Anybody else have a, an older sibling and you, you know what that's like? I mean, my brother's been gone at my church. That's where he got started at for probably over 15 some years now, and there are still Sundays where I'll walk through the lobby greeting somebody and as I approach them, they'll say, oh, hi, Jason, I mean, Jared. That's always what I'm living to. So my hope this morning is that by the time we're done today, maybe a different standard is set. And for the next couple of weeks, you start calling him Jared in the lobby. That would would just make my day. But I want to encourage us to think about this idea of a standard, of trying to measure up to a standard that has been set in our life. So again, take this morning, for example. I am so privileged to be here with all of you, to be in this place where my brother has been preaching for many years now. And as many of you know, he has come to establish a particular standard in the pulpit, meaning there are some things you come to expect weekend and week out when you come to Lakes Free. Now, an example of one of those standards that has been set. My brother this past week shared a text with me, and he said, Jared, as long as you preach less than 35 minutes, the church will love you. <laughs> so apparently a certain standard has been set here that I'm trying to reach. But the conflict that I have is I also want, my, I want to make my brother look good. And so one of the things I thought about making my brother look good is if I just preach for 40-plus minutes, you're going to all love having him back next week, Amen. <laughs> So we'll see where this ends up going today. But I I want us to think about this idea of a set standard because the the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, we are continuing on, as Jason said, in the study of the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to invite you to grab your Bibles. If you don't have some, uh, maybe a phone or a Bible that's provided for you, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 17 through 20, a sermon that we have titled, God-Sized Standards. Okay, so we're thinking about this idea of a standard. Some of us have had to live up to standards. What what exactly is it? Let's just start with the basics. A standard is a level of quality, a level of quality, or it's achieving a goal. How many of you have heard the expression, you know, raising the bar or attempting to raise the bar? That's the idea of a level of quality. There is a standard that has been set that we want to meet. A lot of times in athletics, sports teams talk about wanting to achieve a goal. That's the standard. In this case, the season we're in, the Super Bowl. That's, that's the standard. That's why we play the game. And this definition is going to be helpful for us as we dive into our text this morning. You see, God has a set standard. God has a level of quality. And that level of quality is directly related to achieving a goal. And as to what this level is and what the outcome of the goal is, the Apostle Peter, I believe, states it best. In 1 Peter 1, verse 15, Peter writes, But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves. Right. So God has set the standard by his nature and his character. Because he is holy, that's the standard. You be holy. That's the level of quality. Now, the goal that we're trying to achieve within that set standard, Peter says, also in yourselves, in all of your behavior, in your conduct, in the way that you carry yourself from the moment you rise out of bed to lay your head on the pillow at night, how you live is to achieve a quality set by the standard that is God himself. Be holy. The apostle Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Paul says, be imitators of me. Here is the standard. And the standard he's living off of is that he is living as Christ lived. So so what exactly is Paul imitating about Christ? Well, Jesus himself will tell us later on, coming back now to the Sermon on the Mount, the value of having our Bibles open. You can see it there even in your lap. If you look ahead a little bit in Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus tells us what this standard is. Therefore, you are to be perfect. A level of quality, a goal to be achieved. You are to be perfect. Why? As your heavenly Father is perfect. So there you have it. The God-sized standard that is set over our life is that we would be like him. Now, this standard, sometimes we might even use the word expectation, this standard can can feel heavy and it can feel burdensome, but also awesome at the same time. Would you agree? This is a heavy but awesome thing to be called into. Why is it heavy? I think a lot of us can appreciate the idea of the reason why it's heavy is because if we look in the mirror for too long, If you and I look in the mirror for too long, we will realize that it is entirely impossible for us to ever achieve this standard, holiness or perfection, because it doesn't take long to be honest with ourselves, to recognize our imperfections, our flaws, just how capable or susceptible we are to making mistakes, screwing up, or even just incidentally doing the wrong things. Amen, church? But why is this standard also awesome? Why is it praiseworthy and why should we celebrate that God has set this over our life? It's awesome because it's one thing for us to look at ourselves in the mirror for too long, but if we look at Jesus long enough, we will realize it's entirely possible to achieve this standard. Holiness, perfection. So this is the importance and the hope And the joy of our text this morning. So let's look together. I want to read for us Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. In our modern language, it's like Jesus is saying, dot every I, cross every T. There is nothing too small or insignificant about the word of God and the entirety of its context. And this will be preserved, fulfilled, and kept. Verse 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, it is truly heavy and awesome to consider what you call us to, what you invite into our lives, that we can be like you, holy and perfect. But I pray that you would humble our hearts and as we sang in worship this morning with the spirit of confession, that we would recognize that we are utterly and totally dependent on you for such perfection. So my prayer is that as we leave this morning, our lives, our attitudes, our hearts would be making much of Jesus because he's worthy of it all. Thank you, Lord. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Well, John Stott said the Sermon on the Mount... Was the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and do. These 111 verses are profound because Jesus is teaching us everything we need to know to be called Jesus people. In verses three through 12, what we call the Beatitudes, you've walked through these now several weeks ago, Jesus, in effect, is describing who Jesus' people are. Who you are by revealing the characteristics of the believer's heart. Who you are comes from the heart. And this is the thing that Christ changes. With my children, for instance, I have taught them at a very early age. I have two daughters, now 12 and 10. And as daughters, it's important for me that they understand in relationship to the world that there is a distinctly different reason why they are beautiful. And so I've taught them very early on. I'll playfully ask them the question. I'll say, hey, Ainsley, how did you get to be so, what makes you so beautiful? And from a very young age, I taught them what Proverbs teaches, right? Beauty is deceptive and charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord... And so that my children have come to learn now through this repetition in my life with them that when I ask them, what is it that makes you beautiful? Sometimes they'll kind of smirk and smile and almost get to a point where they're a little embarrassed, but they know the right thing to say. What makes you beautiful? And their answer is my heart. That's right. It's not your hair. It's not your clothing. It's not the makeup. It's not the new earrings you bought. What makes you beautiful is your heart because it's a heart that fears the Lord. This, Ainsley and Brielle, is who you are. And the Beatitudes are describing as Jesus' people who you are because it speaks to the character of the heart. And then in verses 13 to 16, Jesus describes what Jesus' people are. And what you are, the function or the purpose of who you are as a person, is demonstrated in what you do. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. You make a difference. And then as we get to verses 17 to 20, Jesus is basically describing why why we are Jesus' people. Why we are Jesus' people, and he does this by revealing the foundation for this distinctly different holy life. That's what holy is in this context. When Peter, in 1 Peter 1, says, be holy like he is holy, it's not just the idea of sinless perfection. We can't achieve that on our own, amen? We are holy because like the nature and character of God, where he is sinless in perfection, he is also holy because there is no other God like him. So part of his holiness is being distinctly different from anything else. We are being called to be holy, distinctly different from anything else in the world. And that difference is defined by the nature of your heart, a heart that is surrendered over to the Lord. So it's his life, not your life, that people are seeing. This is why we are Jesus' people. In fact, verses 17 to 20 are important because they serve as the interpretive key to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Did you hear that, Jason? Okay, moving forward. You gotta keep them to it. These these verses are important. They are the interpretive key to everything else we're going to be learning throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's because of what Jesus has done that we are different. And the difference shows itself. For example, the interpretive key is seen as you look ahead in verses 21, specifically in verse 22, 23 and following. All right? It's not just, hey, if you commit a violent act against one, that's murder. But Jesus says, no, there's a different expectation, a different standard. It's even the way you think about anger in your heart that you will be held accountable. This is why. Right? So... In our passage this morning, we are helped to understand why we are Jesus' people. And the reason why we are Jesus' people is because Jesus did for us what we could never do on our own. And so, what exactly did Jesus do for us? Well, I want to answer that question with my two points for our sermon this morning. Okay, so two points. I'm trying to keep it so, you know, you you like me. Okay, Two points answering this question. Well, what is it that Jesus did for us? Number one, Jesus fulfilled God's standard. We're going to look at verses 17 and 18. And the first thing that we have to notice as we read verse 17 is the shift from third person to first person. So for example, again, this is the value of the Bible in your laps. If you look at the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12, they're all read in the third person. You see that? Take a look at verse 3. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. And then when we get to verses 13 and 16, it shifts to the second person. Jesus immediately shifts and says, you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But then when we get to verse 17, all of a sudden Jesus speaks of himself. Do you notice that? He speaks of himself. This is establishing, friends, the foundation, our foundation for why? why we become Jesus' people. It's because of what Jesus does, his authority. It's not about what we do or what anyone else does. It's about what he does. Amen? Jesus says, do not think, verse 17, I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when he says the law or the prophets, that's just kind of a shorthand way of saying the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. Don't think that I came to abolish the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now we have to get our hands around what does Jesus mean by this word, fulfill. And one way to understand the word is to read it by the contrast of the word, abolish. You see, Jesus understands that people are going to be questioning his motivations or his intentions. When we think about the Beatitudes, Jesus is teaching this radical inward way of life. You are beautiful because of your heart. When the world and everything around us says, no, you're beautiful because of your clothing and the way you look and the hairstyle, right? This is Jesus is teaching something radical and different as opposed to the exterior focus of the scribes and the Pharisees. And see, Jesus wanted the people to understand that his life was not lived in conflict with the law. Rather, his life was the manifestation of the law. Jesus didn't come to abolish, or another word we use for this is dismantle. I didn't come to take down the law. An an image that a lot of us can appreciate is this dismantling. It's something that we do often with a campground or a tent. How many of you like to go camping? You set up the tent, right? Jesus is basically saying, I didn't come to remove the tent pole to loosen the straps so that the canvas of the tent falls down. That's not what I came to do. I didn't come to dismantle the law, but to deliver the law to its intended completion. So, one way of understanding what Jesus means by fulfill is to know what he didn't come to do. He didn't come to overthrow or destroy what God had made plainly known in the Old Testament, but it's more than that. And let me just take us to a few other passages found earlier in Matthew's gospel, so that we can see just how easy and beautiful the meaning of this word fulfill really is. So these will be on the screen just to make it easy for us. Matthew 1, verse 22. Now all of this took place to what? To fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Jumping ahead to chapter 2, verse 15. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. One more. Matthew 2.23. They came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Now, in the case of these references, events were happening that brought to completion what God had always intended. And in these particular references, as you can appreciate, Jesus being born, Jesus' birth was like a puzzle piece that was being put into place to bring the picture to its intended completion. How many of you like to gather on the coffee table or dinner table, especially as friends and family come together for the holidays and you set out those puzzle pieces, right? We can appreciate this. This word fulfill means to fill up, to make full what was empty empty or lacking. So again, the idea of dismantle, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to break down the tent. You have a tent here. What I came to do is to bring in a sleeping pad and a sleeping bag and a lantern. I came so that you have context and understanding for why this tent is here to begin with. Also, look at the word fulfill. It also means to complete what was left unfinished. Jesus is like that critical puzzle piece. That when you set it in place, all of a sudden you get to be excited because you finally get a sense for what this picture is becoming. See, the life of Jesus, in his life, we receive the whole picture of God. Now here are two things to be, that need to be clarified, okay? So these are like two sub-points within my first point. Am I starting to sound like Jason now a little bit? <laughs> there, I thought there was a two-point sermon. No, it's really four, I'm just kind of hiding these other two down here somewhere real quick. Okay, so the first sub-point of point number one. If Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, that means that Jesus adheres to and upholds the Old Testament. This means that we need to honor the Old Testament and utilize its value in relationship to the foundation of our faith. This is why, friends, you are so blessed... To have a pastor that preaches the whole counsel of Scripture. If we don't understand the 39 books of the Old Testament, we will lack value and appreciation for the 27 books of the New Testament. You can't have one without the other. Why Paul, in Galatians 3.24, says that the, the point of the law is that it acts as a tutor. The law's value is that it points us to Christ. Jesus is placing his authority and his righteousness upon the necessity of God's revelation in the law and the prophets. If I were to put this another way, we can't possibly appreciate our need for a savior if we don't know what we are being saved from. This is the value of the law. I mean, just take John 3.16 for example. I mean this is your first time ever stepping foot in a church i imagine you've heard or engaged in john 3:16 on some level right we all know it for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life why why i mean what does this even mean If we don't have the whole counsel of scripture, it's the Old Testament that reveals our creator God for God. I I only get that concept for the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament that reveals our dependency on him. The whole idea that I, that I am separated, that if I don't believe in him, I will not perish. Well, why? It's because of sin's rebellion revealed in Adam and Eve's decision that caused a separation from this holy God who intended all things to be good, including our fellowship with him. That's no more. It's the Old Testament also, therefore, that promises restoration and spiritual healing by the imagery of this coming Messiah, who is going to fulfill John three sixteen? It's the entirety of the Old Testament that is future-facing. And none of it makes sense if we don't see in Jesus that he is the perfect priest, that he is the pure and spotless lamb, or that he is the true and final king. And see, Jesus states that it is his mission, the reason why he has come, to fulfill these things that are lacking this is why I want to just take us quickly to verse 19. This is why if we look at verse 19, we hear Jesus say, in relationship to the law, its value is so high and should be so honored, verse 18, that every dot, every period and every T crossed has value. Jesus is speaking directly to the authority and the inspiration and more importantly, the inerrancy of the word of God. Which is why verse 19, don't mess with it, Jesus is saying. Don't make it something that you want it to be to suit your purposes. Don't, don't, don't remove the least of these commandments. Don't change it. And this, is a, this can be certainly an odd verse. That the one who annuls the least of these commandments, teaches others to do the same, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. To best understand this verse, let me make this easy for all of us by providing us with a current example. How many of you know this man? Pastor Andy Stanley. Maybe that's a name some of you are familiar with. If you don't know him, Andy Stanley is a a recognized and somewhat celebrated pastor uh, for different reasons, has become known by a lot of people. Uh, He pastors a large church in the Atlanta, Georgia area. His father is Dr. Charles Stanley. Does that maybe ring a bell to to some of you? I, I share this with you because there's different reasons why his name has become known. Not all of them have been great. A few years ago, Pastor Stanley, given his prominence and his influence, preached a sermon in which he said, and I quote, Peter, James, Paul, elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. We must unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Well, what do you all think, church? As you look, (laughs) great answer. (laughs) Doing good, Jason. As we hear the words of Christ and what he bases his ministry on, and we consider that in light of verse 18 and verse 19. Does it seem to you that Jesus has any interest in unhitching his ministry or his testimony from the Old Testament? Of course not. And this is Jesus' warning in verse 19. He's not referring to salvation, but he is making it absolutely clear that rewards and position will be impacted by the way that we handle, affirm, and apply the whole counsel of Scripture to life. And not only is this standard applied to what we think and believe, but even more so, it's applied to how we let our views impact others. I'm not going to judge Stanley's salvation. Verse 19, it doesn't do that. Certainly is not my role to do it, but I can point to verse 19 and judge Stanley's position. The least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, friends, is serious about his word. And he's serious about it because his word points people to himself. As Augustine of Hippo said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, verse 19, you change even the least of these commandments. Why would we do that? Because there's a temptation in our culture today as believers who are called to be holy and set apart to be confronted with what God's word says. And, you know, we begin to kind of think, well, the world doesn't really like some of the things that God's word has to say about life. And I don't want to be called intolerant or exclusive or bigoted or, or hateful. So, you know, I'm going to kind of like push this stuff off to the side or I'm going to kind of change its definition and its meaning or I'm going to apply my own sense of wisdom over it and say, you know, that was for another time in another culture, another context. It doesn't really work anymore here. In the 21st century. But like Augustine says, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Second subpoint, and this will be quick. The implications of all of this is that if Jesus came to fulfill the law, that means that he came to be what we could never do in order to die so we can truly live. I know that's a mouthful, but that is the gospel, friends. That if he came to fulfill the law, and Paul Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to what? To the standards set by God, the level of quality set by God that we see and read in the law. That is righteousness. Righteousness is God's nature and character being revealed, and he is faithful to fulfill what he has revealed to be true about himself. What he's revealed about himself, Jesus did perfectly. Therefore, he was absolutely righteous. We see it, we admire it, we strive for it, but we fail often. Jesus in obedience never did. And that obedience once more came to fulfill the intended plan of God by being that pure and spotless lamb to die for us so that we could receive his righteousness. Jesus came to fulfill not only what the scriptures say about him, he came to fulfill what the scriptures say about God. He is the reason why we can be Jesus' people. Our second point, or is it the fourth point? I'm losing track now. (laughs) Point two, I believe. What is it that Jesus has done for us? Well, the second point is that he has enabled, he, he enables us to live out these godly standards. Jesus enables godly standards. You see, when we look at verse 20, as we look at verse 20, Jesus mentions the scribes and the Pharisees, right? These are religious people we've probably come familiar with as we hear them in God's word, the scribes had drawn out. They were, they were the ones who studied the law and the word of God, and they had drawn out from the, the revealed word of God 613 specific commandments. Talk about a laundry list, huh? And of these 613, 248 were positive. 365 of them were negative prohibitions. Now, a Pharisee or the Pharisees, they were a sect. They were a small group within broader Judaism. And their kind of claim to fame was they were a group of people who were attempting to live up to these particular standards, these 613 commandments, all right? And so for most Jews, they looked at these groups of people, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they found their efforts and their desires both impressive and impossible to maintain, So when Jesus said, look at verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus said that, many of the people listening must have thought to themselves, this sounds impossibly crazy. It sounds like what you're saying to me, Jesus, is these guys who are doing their best to fulfill these 613, you're saying, I've got to do that too, and perhaps even more, that my righteousness has surpassed their standard, their level of expectation? If that's the case, how could I possibly succeed? This is where Jesus gives us the foundation for why. Why we are Jesus' people. And it's not because of what we do or what anyone else does. It's because of what he did. You see, when Jesus says, your righteousness, take a look there again at verse 20. And there, in verse 20, I want to connect us back to the Beatitudes, where we started this whole sermon series. When Jesus says, your righteousness, he is pulling them back to the start of the sermon. If you look at verse 3, and consider its relationship to verse twenty and the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This will be your righteousness, Jesus is saying. Your righteousness, what you have, what belongs to you is not the accumulation of works and efforts and good deeds. It is not the 613 plus something else. Your righteousness is a righteousness that has been given to you. And it's given to you because of a quality of heart, a posture of the soul. Your righteousness is actually my righteousness, Jesus is saying. This is why Paul in Philippians 3, 7, 8 says, whatever were things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 was able to say, look, if we're breaking about accomplishments, I am the one who's at the top of the heap. I've done it all. But he goes on to say, I count all things to be loss. I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing my righteousness. You see, we receive salvation, friends. This righteousness of Christ through a posture of the heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are you is that word when you recognize in yourself as you look at that mirror that there is nothing you can do no matter how hard you try to ever achieve a standard that has been set by a holy God. But you can be holy. You can be distinctly different when through a posture of heart you give your life over to the one who has done it all for you, has met every expectation of God because he is God, has fulfilled every standard, has achieved every goal, and has raised himself up to the level of quality that belongs to God. We don't have to do this any longer. Christ has done it for us. And this is why Paul says, and why Peter writes, and even Jesus says, Therefore keep being perfect keep doing it. Yeah, we're going to have our moments, aren't we, friends? We're going to live our lives and even today walk away and find ourselves some point later on maybe making a silly mistake, saying something and doing something that we deeply regret. But Christ has paid the ultimate price for our sin. And he continues to enable us to live according to his standards. I want to close with a, a brief illustration. A mother took her small child to a concert by a famed pianist named Paderewski. He's a Polish pianist. No one knows for sure if this story ever happened or not, but it fits an incredible picture of what Christ has done for us. And this mother takes her young son to see this concert as he is just starting to learn the piano and is hoping that this will encourage him to want to continue to keep learning. And as they arrived early to the concert, they were seated near the front of the stage, and on the platform, completely empty, though, was this beautiful grand piano. The mother gets distracted with a conversation with some people next to her, and the little boy finds his way up onto the platform and begins to play with his simple little fingers the only song he knows, which is Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And people are starting to feel disruption and like this is come on who's responsible for this child you know there's kind of a a touch in the air of people being turned off by the idea what is this little boy doing who does he think he is and as he's playing twinkle twinkle little star all of a sudden the, the Polish pianist Paderewski hurries to the piano and he leans over the boy and he whispers keep playing keep playing don't stop and the master reached around this little boy With just the simple little fingers. And he takes all 10 and he begins to play and improvise a piece worthy of a concert. Paul in Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. like Jesus just puts his arms around you, brothers and sisters. You can just hear the love of God say, keep playing. Keep playing. It's not about you. It's always been about me. Put your hope and your trust in me and enjoy. We will play forever. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we love you. We are grateful for the profound gift of knowing that though these standards that are set by a holy, incorruptible God of glory is awesome and heavy. We find freedom when we know that all of this belongs to us in Jesus. And that's not about us anymore. And that what we do, we do for you, Lord. To make much of you that even Paul himself says that in my weakness of flesh, Lord, that, that, that my imperfections and my weaknesses, I, I glory in them because ultimately, ultimately they make much of you. Where I am weak, you are strong. So Jesus, thank you for the incredible work you did on the cross for us, forgiving us of our sins and giving us the gift of righteousness so that we can possess what belongs to you now and forever. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you, brother, for blessing us with that great word. Well, church, would you please stand for our benediction this morning? And uh, let me mention, if any of you would like prayer today, some of our elders and Stephen ministers will be down here at the front of the platform. We would love to pray with you. And uh, my brother will probably be around if anyone wants to meet him and say hello to him as well. But uh, I want to leave you with this uh, benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter five. I think it's a great way for us to conclude our service in light of what Jared just shared with us from God's word. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. God bless you and have a great week. Hey friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.